Certainly thankful to be here with you this evening and for the privilege of, of meeting with you to worship uh, and uh, knowing of your congregation and, uh, and praying for y'all since sometime in the mid-90s when I first became acquainted with your, your ministers and with uh, the Peterson boys and, and those that y'all have sent out from this place, uh, but haven't had the privilege of being here, so I'm very thankful. I trust the Lord will be with us in our time together this weekend. Um, there's a hymn in most of our songbooks. I'm not sure if it's in this one or not, but it begins, Poor and afflicted Lord are thine, among the great unfit to shine. That's not the sermon or the message tonight, but those words came to mind as I'm thinking about the the stigma that's attached sometimes to being believers in Jesus Christ or those who are faithful to the Word of God. And the New Testament Scripture provides examples of Christians struggling with reputation and struggling with influence and power and persecution and all the things that come with obedience to the Word of God as it is in Christ Jesus. It's not easy being a believer and being a follower of the Lord. Following the Lord does not bring one prestige, doesn't bring one popularity, and it doesn't bring crowds to uh, the assembly. But it's not about us, and it's not about what it brings to us. Not about reputation, it's not about authority, it's not about power. And that's a lesson that needs to be embraced and learned by each of us. It was a struggle for the church at Corinth in particular. If you remember in the book of Acts, uh, somewhere around chapter 18, 19, we, we read about the Apostle Paul. You know, he had traveled into Macedonia, into Greece. He had traveled to Philippi and from there to Thessalonica and, of course, was run out of Thessalonica, was received readily in Berea. From there, he traveled down to Athens where his companions met up with him and And then he came to the city of Corinth, which was kind of a unique city in the Roman world because Corinth was a a trade center. It was a rich city, a city where there was a lot of money changing hands. And of course, there was a Jewish presence in the city of Corinth. And the Apostle Paul, as his habit was, he went to his people. When he came to the city of Corinth, he immediately found the synagogue associated with the the Jewish leaders in the city, and he began to teach. And we're told the Apostle Paul stayed there for about a year and a half. The Apostle Paul stayed in Corinth, and he taught, and he preached, and people believed, and they were powerfully impacted by the gospel. They were baptized, and they became professing Christians. After Paul's departure from Corinth to the city of of Ephesus, there was some disarray that came into the church at Corinth, some behaviors that were not consistent with their profession. And the the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians are Paul's letters addressing the problems at the church at Corinth. And it's so easy for us to review these letters and think, well, my goodness, these people are barely even a church. I'm so thankful that we don't have the problems that they do. But the reality is we do have the problems that they do. We're all sinners. We're all those who struggle with temptation. We're all those who struggle with a desire to fit in. And if past generations couldn't identify with the church at Corinth, our generation certainly can. As darkness abounds, as corruption abounds, as 
Good is called evil and evil is called good and our culture uh, rapidly declines and, and goes into a, a place of paganism and, and devil worship. It's hard to fit in. It's hard to be a Christian and not stand out and stand out in their minds for all the wrong reasons. Well, that's what the Corinthian church was struggling with. They were separated by their faith in Jesus Christ from their, their Jewish uh, companions, from the synagogue, from, from their traditions that had a place in Roman society. But they weren't able to identify with the teachers of the universities there in Corinth in the educational center. They weren't able to identify with the Roman government, which was polytheistic and insisted on one thing only, and that is that you worship the emperor as a god. They couldn't identify with anyone, but standing alone, they seemed very small and very insignificant and lacking power. So they began to embrace practices that were consistent with the society in which they lived. They maintained the various feasts that were practiced in their day and participated in in riotous living, essentially. They failed to exercise any form of accountability or discipline one over another, so much so that that they ran amok. They had members of their church, one of whom was, was so guilty that he was sleeping with his father's wife, and no one would talk about it. It was better to keep it quiet and let the world know about it but not deal with it in the church than to address it publicly and say, we have sin in our midst. So sin wasn't talked about. And that's so often the case with us. We talk about sin only in very general terms. We talk about sin as that which Christ paid for on the cross. But we don't want to talk about sin as it interacts with our lives and our experience. It's okay to talk about Christ dying for sin generally, but when we start talking about him dying for sins, and more especially my sins, or maybe that sin I committed yesterday, that's too personal. And that's how it was for these men and women of Corinth. They didn't want to talk about Christianity as it interacted with their daily lives and their daily behavior. And Paul understood. He knew where they were coming from. But part of this caused them to begin to reject Paul and his authority and his ministry that he had received from the Lord. They were ashamed of Paul. Why? Because Paul was faithfully following Jesus Christ, and that meant Paul was being afflicted. He was being persecuted. He was being spoken evil of. People were talking bad about him. Paul was intolerant. Paul was one who was a goody-two-shoes. He thought too much of himself. He was puffed up. And they began to reject the very ministry God had given him among them. So Paul writes the first and second Corinthian letters. I want to begin this evening in first Corinthians chapter nine. And I want us to see together how the apostle Paul addresses some of these issues, not by pounding on the Corinthian church for their errors, but by embracing the reality of his own life and his own struggle as a Christian and showing them the importance of serving Jesus Christ today and being diligent and being faithful and being cautious. The Apostle Paul was a firm believer in the sovereignty of God. He was a firm believer that God does what he wants to do, when he wants to do, how he wants to do it. But that belief was not a crutch for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul didn't see that reality as something that removed from him the responsibility of keeping watch over his own soul and those that God had placed in his care.
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll jump in kind of toward the middle of the chapter, verse 19. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law as without law, being not without law to God, but under law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. We'll stop there for just a moment. Paul is saying, here's where I'm at. Here's who I am. You've heard a lot of things. You've thought a lot of things. You've decided a lot of things about me. He said, understand this. I have received from God a commission. The previous verse says, if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What's my reward then, verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel? Paul says, I'm not suffering these things for my own good, for what I'm going to get of it. He says the evidence of this previous in the chapter is, I didn't take any money from you. You didn't support me while I ministered among you. As a matter of fact, in Corinth, the Apostle Paul, it's recorded, worked for a living. He made tents with his own hands He wasn't chargeable to those to whom he preached. He says that's not because it's required of God, but it's because I made myself your servant. And I did it for a reason. He says, I became a servant. I made myself a servant unto all that I might gain the more. Paul says, I was here for a purpose and something that mattered. We need to understand what we do in the service of God actually matters. It was said earlier this evening, it's the most important thing. And that's hard to keep sight of. It's so easy to let other things become a priority and and our service to God to be just another list on the things that we need to do. Paul says, I made myself a servant to all that I might gain the more. And then he says, that affected the way I acted, the way I behaved, the way I lived. He says, to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. He came into Corinth, he met with the Jews in the synagogue, and the Apostle Paul was a Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says. I was everything a Jew could desire to be. And he didn't hide that fact. To the Jews he became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews, with a purpose, to gain the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law. He says, I lived according to the law, and he addresses that in the letter to the Corinthians. He says, you know, if if it's legal according to God's law for you to eat meats that are sacrificed to idols, it's not necessarily prudent. Why? Because there are some under the law who may be offended. And they there are some who may see you eating those meats and think you're worshiping the idols they're offered to. And that'll be a stumbling block to them. Don't do it. Paul says that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the laws without law, that I might gain them that are without law. He says, I became what the people I ministered to was. Well, does that mean Paul changed his behavior? No, not at all. It means that Paul recognized the commonality that he had with all of the believers in Jesus Christ. Paul was able to look at himself and look at those he ministered to and say, we are the same, you and I. 
What are we? We're sinners in need of a Savior. What are we? We're objects of grace and objects of mercy. And we're all the same. And that's the message of the gospel to the children of God. We all are the same in Christ. It doesn't matter what our culture, what our ethnicity, what our nationality, it doesn't matter where in the world we live. We all are the same in Christ. Our commonality is Christ. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John, and what did he say? He said, truly our fellowship with one another, it's our fellowship with Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one that draws us all together, and that's what Paul is saying here as he writes to the Corinthians by inspiration. He says, I became uh, one with those to whom I ministered. I put myself in their position, and I ministered to them where they were. But what did he minister? He ministered the truth. So he finishes up to the weak, became I as weak. Why? That I might gain the weak. Made all things to all men that by all means I might save some. And that deserves some attention, some thought. That by all means I might save some. Paul was not one who thought the gospel had no purpose. Paul was not one who thought his work didn't really matter. The Apostle Paul wasn't just preaching a message with the idea that it doesn't matter who hears or who believes or how it's received because God's going to save everyone that he wants to save anyway. No, Paul says that by all means I might save some. He took the work of God seriously. He took his ministry seriously. So to those of us who are ministers of the gospel, God called ministers, we should take our calling and our work seriously. But those of you who say, well, I'm not a minister, I'm just a believer, I'm just a Christian, I'm just trying to get along in this life, take your profession seriously and recognize that what you say doesn't matter unless you do the works that follow. And that's what Paul's getting to. Why does he do it? that by all means I might save some. He says, and this I do for the gospel's sake. I do this because of the gospel. It's compelling. The gospel is a compelling message that when we believe, we must obey. We must comply. Why? Because the gospel is life-changing. It's life-altering. The apostle Paul understood what it was to have his life turned upside down by the gospel. And he said, I do this for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. How is it that we receive those blessings that come in the gospel of Jesus Christ? How is it that the gospel is applied in our lives? It's when we see the grace of God affecting the lives of those we come in contact with, those around us. We encourage one another by our simple faith and by God's working in our lives together. Every day for me is not a day that I wake up saying, thank you, Lord. It should be, but it's not. Sometimes I wake up in the dump. Sometimes I wake up with struggles. Sometimes I wake up with fears. Sometimes it's hard to remember the blessings that God is showering down on my life every day, but I look around and I see my brethren, I see my friends, I see those who are walking this path with me, and what am I? I'm a partaker with them in what the Lord has done, what the Lord is doing. Paul says here essentially to this church that I've suffered, I've sacrificed, I've extended myself to you that I might be a partaker with you. 
of the joys of Jesus Christ. He goes on, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Here Paul is getting very real with each of us. Don't you understand that in a race only one receives the prize? Paul didn't live in the day of entitlement where everyone gets a trophy. He didn't live in this world we live in where everybody is a hero. No, in Paul's day, heroes were the ones who made a difference and they usually came back on their shields rather than carrying them. In Paul's day, a race was a win-or-lose affair. And that's the analogy he draws for us. Don't you understand they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. What does that mean? He says, so run that ye may obtain. Paul was fond of this analogy. He uses it by inspiration multiple times. Life is a race. You're running a race. And the emphasis is never on the victory. It's never on what you're going to win or the need to finish first. The emphasis is always on how you run. So run that ye may obtain. He goes on, every man that strives for mastery is temperate in all things. A man who wants to be a master of his craft. A man who wants to be a master of any any field, of any knowledge, is a man who pays attention to how he's pursuing the work. Is temperate in all things. Doesn't fly off half-cock, doesn't make a big show, simply does the work meticulously with care. And the emphasis here is on care. You're careful how you pursue the task. You run that you may obtain. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. If someone's going to put so much effort in training to run a race, so that they can win a crown, which in their day was a crown made out of vegetation that decayed and fell away. That one moment of glory, they labor a lifetime. That one who strives for mastery, who is meticulous in all that they do with care. Why? That they might obtain a corruptible crown. Paul says what we seek makes that pale by comparison. We seek a crown of righteousness, one that fadeth not away. We labor to be identified with the one who gave himself for us. You see, as he says in the Roman letter, God has predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his son. And he's given all that he might conform us to that image. And if he didn't spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Paul understands what the prize is. He says they labor for a corruptible crown, we for an incorruptible. And here's the wonderful news. The gospel tells us that incorruptible crown, it's already ours. We don't labor with some faint hope that we may obtain. We labor because the victory is secure in Christ. So the labor should be abundantly more. We an incorruptible. Therefore, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. 
Paul says, I don't run unsure of the victory. I don't run uncertainly. I don't fight like one that beats at the air. I'm not shadow boxing. I'm not throwing wild punches hoping something connects. I run not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I've preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So much of these Corinthian letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, are really an apology, a defense of the Apostle Paul for his actions, for his behavior, for the words that he's spoken. And here we see that. Paul says, I want you to understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ. It means life is a battle. It's a struggle. And I don't fight like one that has no idea of what I'm fighting for. And I don't fight like one who doesn't know who the enemy is. The Apostle Peter writes and says what? He says, Satan is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. Paul says, you're not my enemy. You people that are speaking out against me, I'm not worried about you. And I'm not fighting against the rumor mill. And I'm not fighting against the people who are seeking to war against me. In the Philippian letter, the Apostle Paul writes and he says, there are some who preach Christ simply hoping to add affliction to my bonds. Those aren't the people I'm fighting. He says, I rejoice that Christ is being preached, and I'll rejoice even when it's my enemies doing it. Here he says, I don't fight uncertainly. I'm not beating at the air. I know who my enemy is. And who's the enemy? Well, certainly the enemy is Satan. But in this context, Paul's saying the enemy is right here in my flesh, my temptation, my sin, the pride of life the lust of the eye. These enemies of man, Paul says, they're my enemies. Does Paul know that he's called of God? Yes. Has he met the Lord personally? Yes. Has Jesus Christ personally commissioned him to go and preach the gospel? Yes. But what does Paul say about it? I keep my body. I'm vigilant. I keep my body under subjection, lest after I've preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. Paul is not resting on the crutch of God's authority, of God's power, of God's sovereignty to say nothing can touch me. No, he's looking at the word of God and applying it to his life. He's saying, I need to be vigilant. I need to be diligent. I need to serve him. Because what's the worst thing Paul can imagine? It's being useless in the kingdom of God. And that's the principle that comes up again and again in the scripture. That one who is born of the Spirit of God, called of God to be salt and light in the earth, might be useless and good for nothing. You say, well, that can't be. Well, Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount said what? You are the salt of the earth. You have been made salt. A seasoning agent, a preserving agent, however you choose to look at it, salt is good. You are the salt of the earth. And then Jesus says, if the salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing but to be cast out into the street. The purpose of the gospel, the purpose of the ministry, the purpose of the church of Jesus Christ is to work in the lives of his people, bringing us sanctification, separating us from the rest of society, separating us from what we once were, cutting us away 
and conforming us in a very real way to the image of Jesus Christ. And anything short of that action in our lives makes us good for nothing. Because it's not about getting us to heaven when we die. It's about manifesting Jesus Christ in us. What did Paul say to the Philippians? He said, I don't know whether I'm going to live or die. I'm in a strait betwixt two. I want to depart and be with God, which is far better, but it's more needful for you that I remain. I don't know what to choose. But he said, here's what I've realized. Whether by life or death, so that Christ is magnified in my body, that's where I'm going to find my rejoicing. Brothers and sisters, we need to magnify Christ in our body, and it's not assured. It's not a certainty. It's not time for us to rest on the knowledge of our salvation. It's time to double down and labor. Paul says, I have made myself a servant to all. I've become all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. How do I save them? I save them by looking to myself and serving Jesus Christ out of a pure heart and subduing the temptation of the flesh and of sin. The Corinthian letters, as much as any of the epistles of the New Testament, are filled with Old Testament Scripture. And there's a reason for that. Some would say, well, it's because Paul's writing to a church largely comprised of Jews. There may be some truth that that was the case, but I don't think that's the reason. The reason is because the Old Testament Scripture is the Word of God. When we read the admonition of Peter in his first epistle that tells us to give attention to the Scriptures, he's talking about the Scriptures that were written by holy men in olden times. The Old Testament Scripture. Well, the Apostle Paul is not ashamed to use Jewish Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, and apply it to you and me in a very real way. This context continues into Romans chapter 10. Paul says, I myself should become a castaway. That is my worst nightmare. If I've preached to others that I myself should become a castaway, that they might be caused to stumble by my falling or that I, who have encouraged others to walk in this way, should turn aside. Paul says, I'm not the only example. I'm not the only one who fears this. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant of this reality, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Brother Dave read to us some verses from... Deuteronomy regarding the importance of remembering how the Lord worked in delivering the people of Israel from Egypt, how He worked in delivering them there to the borders of Canaan's land, how He bore with them and humbled them in the wilderness. This is a recurring theme and story throughout the Scripture. It's an illustration God provided for a very real, a very specific purpose, and He provided it for us. That story was recounted by Moses in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and again in Deuteronomy. That story was recounted in the book of Psalms as it's 
condensed and laid out in a couple of different psalms. That story was read by the people of God in Jerusalem as they rebuilt their city after years of captivity. And they called for Ezra and the priest to stand up and read from the book of the law. And they read the story of God's delivering his people from Egypt and the people's disobedience, their rebellion, their rejection of the truth of who God was and what he was doing for them. And then the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, pulls this story out of the Old Testament Scripture and makes it new again for the New Testament church. Don't be ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. In a nutshell, what that means is they were baptized. They were professors of faith. They left Egypt and went into the wilderness trusting God. You say, well, they didn't all have faith. They had enough faith that they left Egypt under threat of death. They followed Moses into the wilderness, and they came up against the Red Sea. They had an Egyptian army bearing down behind them, threatening death. And Moses lifted up his rod and the sea parted, and they were baptized. They walked into a valley between two walls of water, trusting God. And they were professing faith in God and his delivering power that he was going to deliver them out on the other side. And it happened. Wonderful picture of baptism, water on both sides, a cloud overhead, water on all sides. They were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Not only that, they did all eat the same spiritual meat, all drank the same spiritual drink. They cried out because they were hungry. And the Lord God of heaven caused it to rain bread from heaven. Bread that was sweet, bread that was wonderful, bread that was nourishing, bread that had unique properties so that if you hoarded it up for yourself, it rotted, but if you gathered just the right amount, it was good for as long as it was needed. Bread that they picked up off of the ground like dew, and they said, what is it? And hence the name of the bread, manna, meaning what is it? They all ate of the same spiritual meat. They all drank of the same spiritual drink. They were thirsty in the wilderness. God heard their cries, said, Moses, take your rod and strike the rock. And water came forth and they all drank, enough to feed millions. They ate and they drank. Paul's about to talk to these Corinthians about their abuse of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. He says, these Israelites, they were baptized on profession of faith and they ate of spiritual meat and they drank of spiritual drink. They all drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. Doesn't mean there was a rock rolling around behind them, but again and again in their wilderness wanderings, they came to a place where there was a rock and twice God miraculously brought water out of the rock. Paul says, lest there be any confusion about what that rock represents, that rock that followed them was Christ. So these were the people of God. 
They were the elect of God. Israel was his elect nation. Of all the nations of the earth, he chose them. And these people were delivered out of Egyptian bondage, out of darkness into light. They were baptized, and they were partakers of spiritual meat and drink. They're good, right? But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Can't argue that point. Of those who were of age who came out of Egypt, not one, aside from Joshua and Caleb, entered into the land of Canaan. God was not well pleased with them. He overthrew them in the wilderness. And we're not talking about a few individuals. We're talking about everybody, all but two. Now, God's a God of purpose. Why did these things happen? We ask that a lot. Why Why did this happen? Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God cause this to happen? you got to think Moses at some point, as he was seeing people dropping like flies in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, he was asking the question, why did God let this happen? We had a great start. We busted out of Egypt like gangbusters. We had a destination. We had a short path to get there. And then those spies were sent into the land. No, this isn't scripture, but I think it was a mistake for them to send spies into the land. If they had just crossed that river and went into the land and run into the giants, they would have defeated them handily. But they sent spies to count the cost, scope out the land. They sent in 12 spies. They all came back. The question was asked, is the land what God promised? They said, oh, it's better than we could have ever imagined. If you could see the clusters of grapes, if you could see the honeycomb, if you could see the beauty of the land, your hearts would fail you. It's amazing. But there are giants in the land, and there are cities with walls that go up to heaven, and we are not strong enough to take this land. We need to turn around and find another place to dwell. And Joshua and Caleb. Now these are heroes. Joshua and Caleb stood up and said, No, the Lord's given us the land. Let's go. Let's take the land. And you know that faith, that confidence never left those two individuals. They were young men when they went and spied out the land. And they said, We can do this. And their voices were ignored. They were ignored. Forty years later, at 80 years of age, Caleb said, give me this mountain. The Lord has given me this land. I'll take the land. It's not who you are, it's who the Lord is. And these men understood that. So why? Why did this happen? Why does God allow things to happen? We don't always know the reason, but we know God is a God of purpose. And we know why God let this happen, and it's going to surprise you when you read it. These Jews have been wondering, no doubt, since they were little children hearing the law of God read, they've wondered why did God allow them to be overthrown in the wilderness? Why did He allow them to reject His truth? Why did He allow them to turn aside? 
Why did he allow them to fall? Paul writes by inspiration, Now these things were our examples. To the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters as were some of them. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. All these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Why did it happen? It happened for us. It happened so that we could see, so that we could understand, that we could know that what we do matters. What we say matters. How we live matters. And there is a purpose in living as Christians in an evil world. There's a reason, and what's that reason? It's because it brings glory to God. That's the reason, as Paul will explain, it's his purpose. God set them forth as examples, as insamples to us, he says. Why'd the people fall? You say, well, because they didn't go in when God commanded them to go in. That's true. But actually, the direct punishment for that was you're going to wander in the wilderness. You're going to stay in the wilderness until you die. But how did they die? I suppose it's conceivable that for 40 years they could have wandered in the wilderness. And at the end of 40 years, everyone who was over the age of 80, dropped dead. That's not what happened. They died because they took harlots that were sent into the midst of the camp. They died because they complained against the Lord. They died because they said, after realizing the judgment of the Lord, we'll go and take the land. And here Paul lists, all the reasons, direct causes of their death. What were they? They were all disobedience. They were all rebellion. They were all selfish. They were all caving to temptation. These things happened unto them for in samples. They're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. The most dangerous time in the life of a Christian is when we're doing things right. When we have an understanding. When we've experienced a little bit of that sanctification. We're feeling a little bit holy, a little bit righteous. When we're tempted to look around at our brother and say, I sure wish he'd get his stuff together and be more like me. Wherefore, because of this example, because we've seen what happened to the people of God, the ones who were baptized unto Moses, the ones who were fed of the spiritual meat and drank of the spiritual drink, 
the ones who had the blessings of God and the promise of God of entering into his rest, and they fell because of unbelief. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There's no room in the life of a Christian for pride. There's no room for being puffed up. And Paul is writing this to the Corinthians who in chapter 4, he says, why are you so puffed up? What do you have that you haven't received? If there's any good in your life this evening, you've received it from a gracious and a merciful God. You've received it not because of what you've done, but because of who He is, His love for you in Christ Jesus. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Fall into what? Into temptation. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. That's an interesting statement for him to put in there. For all of the warnings that Satan is that roaring lion seeking to devour, for all of the reality that those who are faithful have a target on their backs. You don't believe it? Look at the book of Job. What is that? Job was faithful, he was righteous, he was holy, he was perfect in all of his ways, the Lord says, and he had a target on his back. Not a target painted by Satan either. Satan came and spoke to God, and God said, have you considered my servant Job? He's a good target for your attention. There's no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. We all have the same struggles. One of the great enemies of our souls is that we as Christians often deny that fact. We either think, well, I don't struggle the way that brother struggles. Or worse yet, we know that we struggle and we think that brother doesn't have the struggles that I have. So I have to put up a front. I have to pretend like I'm not struggling. Like there is no temptation that's common to man. Paul says... There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. And there's the hope. God is faithful. And God has shown His faithfulness throughout history. And the Old Testament Scripture, it shows the faithfulness of God. You say, but they fell in the wilderness. They did. But do you know their children entered in? God's faithful faithful to his promises. And when you read that accounting, especially there in the book of Nehemiah, there in chapter 9 and chapter 12 of Nehemiah, what do you read? Again and again they rebelled, and again and again God forgave them, and again and again God restored them. So for you as believers, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. God is faithful. Not to deliver you from the reality of temptation, but to give you a way of escape. God is faithful. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. That's the message Paul has for him. 
Flee from idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, an idol is anything that takes God's place in our mind, our estimation, our heart. Anything more important than God's word, God's will, God's way. Brother Dave pointed out to us earlier, we have God's word. We live by the word of God. It's the word of God that directs our paths. It's the word of God that is a light to our pathway. And it's the word of God that will see us home. So does the word of God matter? Yes, the word of God matters. So what does Paul say? I'm all things to all men, that by all means I may save some. I do this for the gospel's sake, for the sake of the gospel. Paul is concerned for the church at Corinth, and not for the church at Corinth only, but for all the churches. Concerned, lest, as he says to the Hebrews, a promise being left you of entering into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. The same story rehearsed to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem who are tempted to fall away. They're tempted to turn aside. They're tempted to say this Christian thing, this Jesus Christ thing, it's good, but I want it plus a side of the law. I want to maintain the Jewish customs and the Jewish observance. And the Hebrew author, again by inspiration, reminds them of the Old Testament Scripture. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through, through the deceitfulness of sin. What's that? That's idolatry. That's temptation. That's that temptation common to man to which we may fall. So why the church? Why does it matter? It matters because who's going to exhort me today and tomorrow and the next day if, not, if I'm not in the fellowship of the saints of Jesus Christ? If I don't have brothers and sisters who are walking this path with me, who have something in common with me, as Paul said, to the Jews I became as a Jew, to them without the law as those without the law, yet not without the law of Christ. Take heed lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Who's got an evil heart of unbelief? You say, not me, I'm a believer. If you think you've standing, take heed lest you fall. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Is there a heart of unbelief that's not evil? No, there's not. Unbelief is evil. And unbelief is destructive. And that's the message he sends to these people in this time. Exhort one another daily while it's called today. Don't wait till tomorrow. Do it today. Exhort one another today. If the Lord puts on your heart to call me, to reach out to me, to encourage me, to direct me, to exhort me, do it right then. Don't wait till tomorrow. If you see your brother or sister stumbling or turning aside from the truth, Go to them right now. Today, it matters. It's a priority. It's the most important thing. Today, 
lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. What Paul say to the Corinthians? He said that I might be a partaker with you. We are made partakers of Christ. We eat the bread of life. We consume it. We imbibe it. We experience that relationship with Jesus Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, three times in less than 20 verses, the Hebrew writer quotes this verse. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. What was that? That's that time we read about in the wilderness. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, albeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Does it matter what you believe? Obviously. Some people want to make it all about assurance. Others want to make it all about salvation. The gospel makes it all about belief and the resulting obedience of faith. Some professing Christians today say, well, we just need to do enough to secure our home in heaven. You say, well, that's ridiculous. I don't believe in salvation by works. So maybe you say, we just need to do enough to gain some assurance, to have some sure evidence that we're children of God. We hit that mark. That's what matters. In Paul's understanding of the race that we're running, there's no finish line short of appearing in the presence of the Savior. As Paul writes about the race in Hebrews chapter 12, what does he say? He says, let us lay aside every weight. That is, let us run as those who seek to obtain a prize. Let us fight as those who have a purpose and aren't beating against the air. Let us look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, our great example who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Then he says this interesting phrase, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. What's he saying? You're still alive. So it's time to keep fighting. Keep struggling, flee idolatry, fight against sin, keep your body under subjection. Prioritize holiness because you haven't died yet. When is it time to rest? When is it time to say, I've reached the mark? When you're standing in the presence of the Savior, when he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. When with Stephen, you're able to look into the heavens see the blessed Savior. 
we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, Hebrews 4.1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. You say that can't happen. The inspiration of Scripture says it can. The inspiration of Scripture says you should fear. Don't walk around boldly as a Christian, so confident in your salvation that you're not afraid of what sin can do to you. Fear. Fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached. You say the gospel's been preached. I believe the gospel. I received the truth. So what? It was preached unto them as well. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which believe do enter into rest. As he said, there is rest for the people of God. But where is that rest found? Resting from our own works, resting from our own self-confidence, resting from our own faith, even in our own faith, resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, resting in the assurance that if he gave himself for us, he will give us all things that we need, believing that when that temptation rises, it's not a hopeless battle. Because there's deliverance in Jesus Christ. He's overcome. In the Revelation letter, the Savior writes of those who have obtained the prize, of those who in glory extol their Savior, their King. He says of them, they overcame. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of His testimony, and that they loved not their lives unto death. How do you fight? How do you run as one who wishes to obtain? You do it by prioritizing Christ and His word over life itself. He is most important. He's the only essential. That's the only way to flee idolatry. If anything else matters besides Jesus Christ and Him alone, you're an idolater. And Jesus says that so clearly and plainly to His disciples. He sends them out to preach. What does He say? He says, if any man leave not father, mother, sister, brother, houses, lands, For my sake and the gospel, he has no part with me. But there's no man that has left any of these things that hasn't received an hundredfold and eternal life. There's the blessing, there's the hope. So what does Paul say to these Corinthians who are puffed up and are proud and are are too good to hear his admonition and his words? and think they've got it figured out. 
He says, I want you to look back at the example of Scripture. I want you to understand why God's told us about the failings of His people. Why He showed us His mercy time and time again. And He says, I'm going to tell you the reason. These were for an example, for in samples to you and me, that we would prioritize the application of the gospel, that we would prioritize the imperatives of His Word, that we would understand we don't live a life without purpose, but we are not the purpose and the object of our life, not even the object of our salvation. Jesus Christ is all in all. And in seeing that and understanding that and knowing that, what do we do? We flee idolatry. We love not our lives unto death. And we find, we find rest. We find rest today and tomorrow. And we find everlasting rest in the presence of our Savior. And we begin to enjoy the blessings of that deliverance, of that salvation right here, right now, today. And the evidence of Scripture and of history of the church itself is that if you and I can realize these truths, if we can see this instruction and apply it in our lives so that Jesus Christ really does become the only one who matters, the people of God are going to be drawn to that example. They're going to be drawn to that reality. They're going to be encouraged. If we can overcome our pride and exhort one another today, while it is called today, if we can be vulnerable and expose ourselves one to another, so I'm not coming to you as a sinner and me as righteous, but I'm coming alongside saying there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. I'm right there with you. But we have a victorious Savior. And we have strength. And He will make a way of escape. And we're going to fight this battle together. We're going to war together. And we're going to win together. Because as he says to the same Corinthian church, thanks be to God who hath given us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Victory is ours. Victory is secure, but the battle still wages. And the battle is the subjection of this flesh, of this body. I keep my body under subjection, he says. Paul tells us a little more about that in Romans chapter 7. He says, there's a war going on within my members. I find it a law that when I would do good, evil's present with me. I've got a battle to fight. But what does he say? I have victory in Jesus Christ. The victory is ours, but the war wages on. Perhaps the greatest encouragement that any of us will ever experience is the simple realization that we're not alone in the battle. Christ shows His face. 
His word speaks to our heart. He comforts us with his presence. And he picks us up when we fall. The great blessing of the new covenant distinct from the old is no one is left behind. In this Old Testament example, they fell in the wilderness and their bodies moldered there in the ground and they never entered in. But in this new covenant experience, the Lord picks up the fallen and carries them over the line. Let us fight. Not like we're beating the air, trying to make a lot of noise, trying to look like we're really quick on our feet. Every time I read that verse, I think about Muhammad Ali and the rumble in the jungle and the rope-a-dope. Let the other guy beat himself out, punching on your gloves, punching on your shoulders, not doing any real damage till he's exhausted, and then throw a few well-placed punches. Don't fight like we're fighting the air, beating the air. Attack the real problem, the real enemy. My own idolatrous nature, my own lust, my own selfish pride. And so run as one who desires to win a prize. Run as one who is committed to run until death itself. And realize at the moment of your death, you'll wake in the presence of the Lord. And then you'll be satisfied. Thank you for your attention, your time this morning, and your prayers.